Good morning. My name is Brad Burford, and uh, I've, I've been at Village since before it was Village. <laughs> but, uh, and, yeah, so, anyway, I'm, uh, I, I'm also on the Board of Servant Leaders, and uh, so if you have any questions about what's going on around here, uh, let me know. Today's scripture reading is from Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea. And such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us, who is to blame for this trouble we're in? What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with his innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is God's word. Well, this morning we are embarking on a four-week journey through the book of Jonah. Uh, how many of you are acquainted with the story of Jonah or what we just read there? Yeah, yeah. So if I said Jonah and the, who could finish it? Whale or big fish or whatever you want to call it, right? So Jonah, it's like the quintessential kid's story, Bible story, right? It's got all of the elements you want in a great, maybe Disney short movie or something, right? Uh, it's got grandeur, it's got thrill, it's got suspense, but that does present a problem, actually, to us as we go to study Jonah this morning and then over the next few weeks. 
Because the book of Jonah is actually quite a bit more sophisticated and more uh, insightful of a story than we might have gathered in Sunday school. Um, The truth is, Jonah is not a kid's story at all. In fact, most kids' stories about Jonah leave out some pretty important parts of the story, and the parts that they do focus on oftentimes will oversimplify or attenuate or make the whole thing into a moralized tale about doing good. It is a story and a book like none other in the Bible. And the fish, which is the center of the star, right? It's actually not about the fish. Like all other scripture, like the Bible, the book of Jonah is about God. Scripture is all about revealing to us God, his character, how he acts in the world and what his purpose is. And ultimately, scripture is about leading us to Jesus and opening our eyes to see what God is doing in Christ and accomplishing through this world or in this world. All, all scripture is, is, uh, is about God and his character and how he acts. Now, this book, it's not about entertainment. It's not a moral reference book. It's not a personal devotional story. The Bible is a revelation of God. And that is no different here in the case of the book of Jonah. God is revealing who he is to us through this story. And so that's the eyes, that's the filter, that's the, the binoculars or whatever, the, the, that's what we, we, the glasses we have to put on to see what's going on here. This story is full of wit, it's full of irony, it's full of sarcasm. Uh, the book of Jonah is kind of a sort of ancient Hebrew satire. It is written in such a way that it consistently has people acting contrary to how you might expect them to act. Everything is blown up and and gigantic in proportion. In fact, the word in Hebrew that we translate great is used 15 times in 48 verses. All of Jonah is a very short book. 48, if you're studying Acts with us, a men's or women's Bible study, there are chapters in Acts that are longer than Jonah, at least in verses. And the central human character in this story of Jonah is a man named Jonah and is actually more, Jonah is more of a representative character. He stands in representing the covenant people of God, representing the people of God, God's called out ones, his chosen ones. And it's through those people, God's chosen people, that we see throughout the Bible that he is wanting to move through and act through them to bring grace and mercy to this world by bringing a message of repentance to the lost and a call to repentance to those who walk in wickedness and evil. But we find out that Jonah is a horrible, morally defective person, full of hatred. And just when you think you can write him off as hopelessly flawed, and begin to exalt yourself as spiritually superior, the writer will have you right where he wants you in order to expose your own heart. In order that you might make much of what God is or who God is and what God is doing and make little of your own self-centered 
righteous superiority. As one scholar put it, this story, the story of Jonah, is aimed at exposing the worst tendencies that tend to form inside of God's covenant people, which are pride, hard-heartedness, judgmentalism, tribalism, single-mindedness, and an inability to grow and change and let God's grace actually surprise you and explore the boundaries of what you thought was possible in this world. That's what this story is all about. My hope is that we are all surprised by God's grace over the next four weeks. Today will be a bit of background. We read the whole chapter because in context we need to see it, but today we are probably not going to get beyond the first three verses. The first verse reads, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And verse one begins in a way that would cue an attentive Bible reader. Hopefully we're all attentive Bible readers. And if, if you're not, I'll do a, a plug here. We have a Bible reading program that we're on as a church. Uh, we post every day on social media the scriptures that we're studying together, as well as there's a chart out there on, at the Welcome Center you can pick up. And you can join at any point in time because we're not stopping. <laughs> when we get to the end, we're starting over again. So you can start today to read your Bible. And any attentive Bible reader who comes to the story of Jonah would be cued that they are about to read a book of prophecy. With this opening line, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, they would go, okay, I'm about to read a book of prophecy. That's a very common opening verse for a book of prophecy where the word of God would be revealed to a prophet and a prophet not being a fortune teller or some voodoo worker, but a merely a messenger of what God's perspective is on something. That's what, a, that's what a prophet is. And they'd be tasked to deliver that message either in writing or to go to a place and preach that message to bring God's perspective to the scene. But this first verse in, in Jonah chapter one is the only part that is similar to other books of prophecy. From here on, it gets really interesting. It is a book about a prophet, that only contains in the Hebrew about five words of prophecy out of all 48 verses. The word of the Lord comes to a prophet, and so here we have Jonah, son of Amittai. And already, if you and I were uh, able to read the Hebrew, which I have to rely on other scholars to do that for me, but if we were and we were reading along in our Hebrew Bibles here, after this first line, if we knew the story of Jonah already, as most of us do from our childhood, we would begin to laugh. This, we would find this very funny, this first line. Because in Hebrew, a lot of the names that were given to people had significance and meaning. And so you were not just saying someone's proper name, you were saying something about them or something that was tagged to them or attached to them. And what you have here in this opening line of Jonah is Jonah, which means dove in Hebrew. Dove. And Amittai, which means faithfulness. And so you have a story that centers on a human character, a prophet, whose name is Dove, and he's the son of faithfulness. And this prophet, Dove, son of faithfulness, will act in a complete opposite. Again, this is that idea 
that is Hebrew satire. This overblown character will act in a way that is completely the furthest away from the gentleness of a dove or the faithfulness of God. Jonah is a real historical figure, but as we look at that from there, there's kind of two orthodox views that develop, and they emerge from that, the nature in the book of Jonah. One says that the retelling of Jonah is actual events that took place in actual time like a historical narrative. We're just getting the history. One says that it's the historical narrative, and then there's another Orthodox scholars believe this as well, that this is more of a parable, a story that's been crafted, that's been borrows from real people in real places who, have, uh, who elicit a certain feeling among the audience in order that they might present a deeper story, a hidden meaning that can be discerned as you reflect and reread and meditate on the story. Jonah was a real person. He's recorded in 2 Kings in a historical narrative for sure. And in that historical narrative in 2 Kings, we find that he's ministering during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jeroboam II was a wicked king who did evil in the sight of God. And the one reference we have to Jonah outside of this book that bears his name is that he's prophesying favorable expansion to the northern kingdom. The kingdom will expand and gain territory. And by this time, the people of God in Israel have already gone through a really great tragedy, and that is that the first king that bared the name Jeroboam, remember, he, he's ministering during Jeroboam too, but the first king that had that name, well, he basically began a civil war and split the tribes in half. Split Israel into a northern and a southern kingdom of the southern kingdom of Judah. And both Jeroboam the first and second are wicked in God's sight. And the faithful people of God in Israel would have not cared much for a prophet who says favorable things about either one of them. And so when Jonah's on the scene prophesying expansion, regardless of your view of whether this is historical narrative or a narrative parable, the central figure in this story would not have been liked or loved at all. In fact, his favorable prophecy is eventually overturned in, in a contemporary prophet named Amos. He, so Jonah prophesies expansion for the kingdom of Jeroboam. Jeroboam's wickedness results in God coming to Amos and saying uh, to deliver a message of prophecy that says, all that you, you, were, you gained, all that you were given will be taken from you now. And who will be taken from? The Assyrians, the very ones that Jonah is invited <laughs> to go declare a message of repentance to. Verse two says, get up, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Here we see this kind of kingly language of God. God is represented as a king in his courts and a king of the world, and he's looking at his realm and the wickedness, the news of the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before him. And Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, uh, and they are unmatched in the ancient world in their brutality, unmatched in, in, in their oppressive violence. 
Uh, they are known for defeating their enemies. They're real, really well known for defeating their enemies. And then when they defeat their enemies, they're really well known for taking the leaders of their enemies and filleting the skin from their body as a public display of their conquering. And among many of the other captives who they have no business or they have no interest in taking with them off into captivity, they would uh, regularly cut off both of their legs and one of their arms and leave one arm so that as the troops were filing out of the city, they could shake each one of their hands as they died in their pool of blood. This is the treachery, this is the violence of the nation of Assyria. This is what rises before God, the cries of oppression and violence and brutality. Anyone who was allowed to live would be deported back to Assyria to live out their lives as slaves. Assyria was an enemy of Israel, and therefore they were despised and hated by all. (laughs) Bonus material. (laughs) Thanks, Brad. (laughs) We'll get you your mic next time. Hold it up to it. Assyria, this enemy of of Israel, is is hated and despised, and God is aware of their wickedness and oppression. And so what does God do? He sends Dove, son of faithfulness, to go and preach a message of repentance. Jonah, son of faithfulness, go, preach this message, preach against their wickedness. And we know later on in the story that Jonah knows all along God's intention or God's heart. And that's why, one of the reasons he doesn't want to go. And that is God is merciful and compassionate and he wants to have compassion on them if they would but turn. But you can imagine at this stage in the story, if God came to you, let's say it's 1941, and God comes to Lanny and says, Lanny, I want you to go and preach to the Third Reich. You're going to stand in front of Hitler himself and you're going to call him to repentance. You think Lanny's eager to get down the road and head on over to Nazi Germany? No, not at all. Not, and so there's a human element to this of the most brutal, vicious nation in the world at the time and the stories that come from that. And you're telling me to go stand in their presence and tell them that they're sinful, wicked, and they need to repent to a God that they've never heard of and they don't worship? Craziness. But God says, get up and go. Get up and go. And so what does Jonah do? It says he got up and ran. (laughs) He got up and ran the exact opposite direction. Nate, go ahead and put up that graphic really quick. He ran as far as he could go away. Now, if you know about, like, if you read some histories on shipping and and how they explored the waters, you know that the Strait of Gibraltar was kind of this end all for a long time. And while we have ancient stories of possible exploration outside of that, it wasn't until the times of, you know, Christopher Columbus where they're still still starting to make their way down the African coast to the left here, past Tarshish. So you have 
Jonah who says, I'm out of here. I, I could go 500 miles that way to Nineveh, or I could go 2,500 miles that way, and I could go to the end of the known world and get away, and I'm out of here. He literally goes to what we would call Timbuktu. The furthest you can get. Jonah, God says get up, and so the verse actually says, Jonah got up, same word. Jonah got up and did the opposite of what God said. The cry, and here, here's, some, here's some interesting little Bible uh, uh, tidbits. The, the Bible, the, the, this passage and throughout Jonah, it says that the cry of oppression goes up to God, right? So cries go up to God, and so he tells his people to get up and do something, and in the image of, of the Bible, right, elsewhere in the Bible, we see that prayers go up to God, right? And what do the godly people of Israel do when they're ready to worship God? They go up to the temple in Jerusalem. They go up. Up is the right direction they're supposed to be moving. They get up and they go. But here, Jonah gets up and runs. And where does he run? It says... He goes down to Joppa. He doesn't go up, he goes down to Joppa. And after he secures his fare on the ship, what does he do? He goes down into the ship. And later in the story, we'll see that he goes down again and again. To the, he, goes to the, the, he goes to the bottom of the ship and it says that he goes into a deep, Sleep, a deep sleep. And later he will go into the depths of the water and into a great fish where he'll spend three days and three nights, right? Which in ancient Near Eastern thought was actually the time it took to travel to the underworld. Three days and three nights. And so it's basically saying Jonah was good as dead to death, down, down, down. The cries go up. God says, get up. God says, go. And Jonah goes down, down, and further down. Jonah's first step in rebellion is the beginning of a downward spiral. Down, down, and further down. Did Jonah think he could run away from God's presence? It says that he went away from God's presence, but did he think he could escape it? Did, did he think that God was like all those other terrestrial deities that had kind of boundary lines and they wouldn't move beyond them? For sure he did not. It, it, he, he certainly studied the Torah. He certainly understood who God was. If he had even heard something in the sentiment of Psalm 139, he would hear that, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If, if I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn or settle down on the westernmost horizon, even there, you, your hand will lead me. Your hand will hold on to me. Surely the darkness will hide. If I say surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness will be not dark to you. Will, is not dark to you. The, the night shines like the day. Darkness and light, a light alike are to you is most certainly that he did not think he could 
escape God's presence, God's providential rule, his sovereignty. It's actually more likely that this was a term that was used for a courtier. This was someone who served in the courts of a royal. He served God. He listened. He was there when God spoke, and he was to act. That's what he was to do. That was the job of the prophet, to hear God's perspective and to deliver it. And he says, I'm abdicating my calling. I'm leaving the presence of God. Basically, I quit. No thank you, find someone else. Disobedience. He received a command, a call, and he's disobeying. And that's where we're gonna go ahead and park for a minute before we conclude this morning. As I said, we weren't gonna get very far into it, but more of an introduction. Our relationship with the idea of obedience is probably a mixed bag of thoughts and feelings. Obedience probably isn't the most positive trait extolled in our culture. In some places, maybe, in other places, not. In in fact, a lot of people, and maybe even you, have a view of God that is something like this. He is an arbitrary dictator, commanding people to do this or that, and he's always like borderline angry, volatile, and picking fights. And what does he demand? He demands absolute, total, and complete submission. No questions, no comments, no complaints. That's God. And a lot of that, a lot of us probably pick that up from authority figures in our lives and how we were treated and what was demanded of us. But consider what God is actually doing here in Jonah. Consider not your own projection onto the story But what is actually taking place? God is sending his servant, a representative of his covenant people, his treasured possession, the people that he has chosen to reveal himself through his word, through the law, and through the, the temple worship and the priesthood, a place that he's chosen to reveal himself to them to go preach against the evil that is prevalent in their in another society. And that evil is destroying that other society from within. That evil is leading them to ultimate ruin. And God is sending one of his dear covenant children to go make an appeal to them. To turn from their wickedness. And Jonah knows, he says it later, he knows that God is looking actually to show his great mercy to them. He knows it. That in their repentance, he is going to offer grace. Jonah's call to obedience isn't some arbitrary dictator's power trip, but an invitation for Jonah to participate in the bigger story of grace. Jonah has too small of a vision for his life. He sees self-preservation He sees tribalism and and comfort as the vision for the good life. And he's going to protect that, even if that means running to Timbuktu. And God is inviting him into a bigger, riskier, but grace-saturated story that would place Jonah 
in what God is doing in this world. It's not just Jonah living out his own small little world. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road for us. We are, we are often too content with our small little world. We are content, maybe if you're a believer, you're content with being a part of a church and coming on Sunday morning to get your fix, to get your hit. And then back to whatever small little world you live in, all for yourself. Do you see that God's word, the word of the Lord, the word of God comes to you. The word of God is there, it comes to you through his word. And some people see that as ruining their life. God's word came to me and he ruined my small little me life. This life that I sketched out for myself. As one pastor points out, the sad irony of Jonah running is that he thinks he is running for his life, but he is actually running from life. I love my three boys as pastor. They often get used in examples, right? I'm looking at them right now, <laughs> two of them at least. And I want nothing but good for them. I want nothing but good. I, want, I don't want them to be in pain. I don't like when they are depressed or they have mental agony. I, I want them to flourish. I want them to abound in joy and I want them to experience love that is rich and life-giving. And there, there have been times and continue to be times where I can see that something that they want, they want so bad, is going to work against that vision of life that I see for them. I see a vision of life for them of flourishing, and I see something that they want, and they believe that it is life, and they think that it's everything to them as they've grown up, and I see that it could derail, it could destroy, it could steal the life they could have. If they were free to indulge in it, what they believe was life-giving, it would actually bring them hurt and harm and pain or worse. And so I have many times had to ask for their trust in their obedience so that I could help them avoid the harm and they could find the good stuff in life. And I'm imperfect. I'm, I'm very flawed and fall short. In fact, last night I had to call two of my, my two younger boys in and I had to repent for something and ask for their forgiveness. But if that's how it works for a flawed, imperfect father to his kids, how much more so with a perfect, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-good Father in heaven? To be a Christian, to follow Christ, is to have a radical view of God's grace and is to embark on that journey of loyal, trusting obedience. It is to let God lead you into a spacious, big, great, and exponentially larger life than you could ever dream of having. It is to be caught up, caught up in God's work of salvation in this world to see the most unlikely discover his grace and love in the most unlikely ways 
through you. Don't have a small view on life. A small view that you, have, you must protect even from God and his word and his calling on your life. Instead, run to life that is found only in relinquishing that and finding it in God and his word. Jonah, the book of Jonah is like a mirror. And occasionally we will hold it up and we will see the worst inclinations of our own heart. But we will also see the most grace-filled invitation from the heart of God to each one of us. And I pray that we answer that invitation with, yes, Lord, take me where you want me. Use me how you will. I'm ready to go.